Our second Bible reading is Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative, Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Marlon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Marlon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is worth more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child, and laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab 
fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. It would help me if you could leave that page open, those pages open, so we can keep looking at the passage during the sermon. Let's bow our heads to pray. Father, may your word be our rule, your spirit our helper, and your son's glory our supreme concern. Amen. Why do Christians read Old Testament books such as the book of Ruth? I wonder how you would answer that question. One answer would be to say that the Old Testament, just like the New, is the Word of God, God's message to humanity. And that alone makes it meaningful and important. God is always worth listening to. That's one solid answer to the question. But what if we change the question slightly? Why do Christians read Old Testament books like Ruth when we could be reading a New Testament book? How would you answer that? After all, the New Testament has plenty of content to keep us busy. And someone might say the New Testament has an edge over the Old because it was written in our own period of salvation history. It was written by New Covenant believers for New Covenant believers, whereas the Old Testament was written by Old Covenant believers for Old Covenant believers. You can imagine someone saying that and prioritizing the New Testament on that basis. But there's actually a mistake built into that way of thinking about the Old Testament. It wasn't written by Old Covenant believers for Old Covenant believers. It was written by Old Covenant believers for us, for New Covenant believers. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Peter's talking about Old Testament prophets, the likes of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and he says, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. Peter was writing to people like us, people in our period of salvation history, and he says God revealed to the Old Testament prophets that their target audience was us. Of course, people at the time they were writing could get good things out of what those prophets were saying, but we were the ultimate target audience. The Apostle Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians. He's talking about things that happened in the time of Moses, and he says, these things were written down for our instruction. These things were written down for our instruction. So if you picture the Old Testament as fruits and vegetables, ever since it was first written, people have been squeezing good, nutritious juice out of those fruits and vegetables. God's word is always worth listening to. But in our period of salvation history, we can squeeze even more juice out of those Old Testament fruits and vegetables. God made the Old Testament supremely relevant for our period 
of salvation history. And that means we should expect Ruth chapter 4, today's passage, to give us even more nutritious juice than the original readers were able to get out of it. It's a passage about a noteworthy marriage followed by the birth of a son. And for the rest of the sermon, we're going to look at three expectations generated by that birth, that newborn boy. The importance of those three expectations actually grows in time, like ripples becoming mighty waves. They were significant expectations back then, but their significance is even greater for us. The first of the chapter's three expectations to do with the newborn boy is that the newborn son will perpetuate the name of the dead. The newborn son will perpetuate the name of the dead. Take a look, please, at verse 5, which is over on page 10. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. There's a lot going on in that verse, and much of it is difficult for 21st century Westerners to understand. Boaz takes legal things for granted that we don't take for granted. What's more, if you haven't heard the other sermons in this series on the book of Ruth, the people mentioned in verse 5 won't mean very much to you. So that calls for a quick recap of the story so far. There are three people named in verse 5, Boaz, Naomi, and Ruth. We'll start the recap with Naomi. She's a widow who's lost not only her husband, but also both of her sons. They all died in the country of Moab where they had gone to escape a famine in Israel. That relocation from Israel to Moab wasn't a neutral thing to do. It revealed a lack of faith in Israel's God. It was a self-imposed exile from God. But when Naomi hears the famine in Israel has ended, she decides to leave Moab and return home. And that brings us to Ruth. Naomi's sons had married Moabite women before they died, and Ruth was one of those wives. Remarkably, when Naomi goes back to Israel, Ruth goes with her, choosing to worship the God of Israel as her God. They arrive in Bethlehem in great need. Ruth has to glean in the fields, picking up leftover crops that the harvesters have overlooked. And there in the fields, Ruth meets the third of the three people mentioned in verse 5, Boaz. Boaz is the owner of the land where Ruth is gleaning. He speaks kindly to her, gives her food to eat, and he makes sure her gleaning goes well. When Naomi discovers later that Ruth has been gleaning on Boaz's land, she's very pleased. She says, this, the man is a close relative of ours one of our redeemers, one of our redeemers. Under Israelite law, enslaved people could be bought out of their slavery 
by a close relative known as a kinsman-redeemer. Land could also be redeemed when an Israelite in financial trouble sold land, a kinsman-redeemer had the right to buy it. Usually the kinsman-redeemer would then give the land back to the relative who had sold it, probably saying something like, no more Poconites for you, cousin. I hope you've learned your lesson. I've redeemed your land for you. It's yours again. Now, you can see how those redemption laws would set up a general expectation that your relatives, your kin, would step in to help if you got into trouble. That's why Naomi is so pleased when she hears that Boaz has been kind to Ruth. Listen again to Naomi's words. The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. She seems to expect that Boaz will do great things for them. In last week's chapter, chapter 3, Naomi sets a bold plan into motion. She reminds Ruth that Boaz is one of their relatives, someone who they can look to for help. She also reminds Ruth that it would be good for her if she can find rest. Earlier in the book, Naomi had talked to Ruth about finding rest in the home of a husband. Ruth gets the message. Her job is to invite Boaz to fulfill his kinsman-redeemer role by marrying her. Ruth goes ahead with the plan and Boaz agrees to redeem her. No doubt to Ruth's huge relief and huge delight. This will mean an end to her and Naomi's poverty. But there's a hitch. Boaz isn't the closest relative to Naomi and Ruth. There's another kinsman closer than Boaz. And Boaz can't just jump ahead of him to the front of the Redeemer line, as it were. Whether they like it or not, this other relative has the right of first refusal. So at the end of chapter 3, we know Ruth is going to be redeemed. We just don't know who will be the redeemer. Boaz, who by this time we're rooting for, or the other guy who we're not rooting for. And if you were feeling a little tense about that situation last week, spare a thought for Ruth and the tension she must have been going through. Let's look down to verse 1 of chapter 4 on page 10, and I'll read from there. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he, that's Boaz, took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative, Elimelech. The city gate was the traditional place for doing business, making legally binding agreements. By gathering ten of the elders of the city, Boaz makes sure that the negotiating process will have an official result. In the discussion that follows, Boaz goes back to the laws at the heart of the kinsman-redeemer tradition. Those laws, as we saw a moment ago, were very specific. 
there was a law about redeeming a relative from slavery. Well, that doesn't apply here. Ruth isn't a slave. But there was also a law about redeeming land. And that land law does apply here. Let's look down again to verse 3. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, that's the other man, and he said, I will redeem it. Well, let's press pause there. This is the moment of highest tension. It looks as if the other fellow will redeem the land, and for reasons we'll get onto in a moment, that will mean wedding bells for him and Ruth, instead of Boaz and Ruth. But the other fellow hasn't grasped the situation properly. He's thinking, that's a good piece of land right there. It would add to my holdings and enlarge my inheritance. But he's forgetting about another law, a law we spent some time thinking about in last Sunday's sermon. Putting it briefly, if a man died childless, if a man died childless, the law empowered that dead man to pass on his land to a future son born to his widow. If his widow married again and had a son, the dead man's land would go to that son. The widow's new husband wouldn't have any choice in the matter. Their son would inherit the former husband's land as the former husband's heir. The only other thing to say about that law is that the widow was expected to marry the dead man's closest male relative. His closest male relative. Well, it's taken us rather a long time to get back to verse 5, but now I think it should make much more sense to us. Let me read verse 5 again. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Boaz has that other law in view. He's saying, look, friend, the point of redeeming the land is to keep it in the family. And if there's a widow on the scene, keeping the land in the family will mean marrying her. So that if she has a son, that son will inherit the land as the dead man's heir. And in this case, my friend, there is a widow on the scene, Ruth. Ruth the Moabite. In response, the other fellow scratches his chin and sighs heavily. This whole perpetuating the name of the dead business changes the nature of the transaction. It would mean the land would never be treated as part of his inheritance. He'd have to support Ruth, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, and if he and Ruth had a son, the land he was on the point of buying would stop being his land. In the eyes of the law, it would belong to their son. The man couldn't see much of an upside. It was easy to see downsides, 
such as marrying a Moabite woman. That wouldn't be popular with everybody. Plus, he'd have to care for Naomi, the destitute mother-in-law. He doesn't scratch his chin for very long before he says the words of verse 6. I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. At that point, Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi smile with joy and relief. We know from chapter 3 that Boaz is enthusiastic about redeeming Ruth. He wants to do the right thing, that's part of it. But judging by what he says about Ruth elsewhere in the book, he's recognized that her value outweighs the costs of redemption. Proverbs 31 verse 10 says, A wife of noble character who can find she is worth more than rubies. In Boaz's eyes, redeeming the land with Ruth as part of the deal is like gaining great treasure. All that remains is for the transaction to be formalized. In verses 9 and 10, Boaz says to the people gathered at the town gate, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech, and all that belong to Kilion and to Marlon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Marlon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. Thanks to that negotiating and that public agreement, when Boaz and Ruth later have a baby boy, everyone in the town has the same expectation. They expect this boy who's called Obed to inherit the land in the name of Ruth's former husband, Marlon. Marlon's body is buried far away in Moab, but Obed will keep Marlon's land in Marlon's family. Obed will do that. He won't be considered the son of Marlon in every sense, as we can see from verse 21, where Boaz is named as Obed's father in that biological family tree. But by inheriting Marlon's land as Marlon's legal heir, Obed will perpetuate the name of the dead. When he's old enough to understand, Boaz will take him out to the fields and put an arm on his shoulder and say, look, son, all of this land is yours. It comes to you from Marlon, your mother's former husband. According to the law, you are Marlon's heir. And so instead of being cut off, the name of Marlon lives on. His connection to the property lives on through Obed. Well, I said at the start that the expectations in this Bible chapter are more meaningful to us now than to them then. And we will explore that towards the end of the sermon. But for now, we'll press on to the second expectation to do with the newborn son. And it's worth saying we'll look at this one and the third one more quickly than the first. The second expectation is found at the start of verse 15. The women of Bethlehem are speaking, and they say to Naomi, he meaning Obed, the baby, shall be to you a restorer of life. He shall be to you a restorer of life. The second expectation is that the newborn son will be a restorer of life. 
The idea here is fullness of life. Life with a sense of purpose and richness. It's about Naomi's sense that life is worth living, being restored. Back in chapter 1, verse 21, Naomi, when she arrives in Bethlehem, returning from Moab, she says to the women of Bethlehem, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Here in chapter 4, verse 15, the women of Bethlehem are saying, you're not empty anymore. You've got this little one, this grandson to care for. Judging by verse 16, Ruth will find it very hard to get her boy away from his grandmother, Naomi. It says, then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. The women of Bethlehem have good reason to expect that Obed will restore Naomi's life. Let's move on to the third expectation to do with the baby. Expectation number three is that he will be a nourisher of the elderly. A nourisher of the elderly. That's what the women of Bethlehem tell Naomi in verse 15. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. They're saying the baby will keep Naomi well fed in her old age. When you're old, you need someone younger and more energetic to work the land and bring home food. And that's what Obed will do when he's grown up. Which time Naomi, who's currently middle-aged, will be an elderly woman. This nine-pound baby represents many, many pounds of future crops. It's fair to say that the book of Ruth is obsessed with food. Food is central to the plot. It, it drives the plot along. It was a famine that took Naomi and her family to Moab. It was news of food back in Israel that led Naomi to return home with Ruth, her Moabite daughter-in-law. And it was food that brought Ruth and Boaz together. They first meet when he finds her gleaning in his barley field, gathering food for herself and Naomi. What's more, most of the events of the book of Ruth take place in the town of Bethlehem, which means house of, house of bread. And on top of all that, the writer of the book uses an eye-catching device to flag up the importance of food. At the end of each of the book's four sections, the author gives an update on the food situation. Chapter 1 ends with a mention of the barley harvest. There's another comment about harvests at the end of chapter 2. Then at the end of chapter 3, Ruth brings home a garment filled with barley to Naomi. And chapter 4 sticks with that pattern. As with all the other sections, there's a note towards the end about the food situation. In verse 15, the baby is described as a nourisher of the elderly. Well, we've looked at the three expectations to do with this newborn boy, Obed. And we need to ask ourselves what the original readers of the book of Ruth would have learned from those expectations. 
I said at the start that as New Covenant believers, we can get more juice out of the book than the original readers. But the meaning for us now is the meaning for them then in light of all that's happened in salvation history. So let's start by thinking carefully about the original meaning for them then. The first readers would have come away from this book with greater confidence in the power of their God, the God of Israel, to provide. We've seen what a difference baby Obed makes to Naomi. He will keep her son's property in the family. He will restore her life, lifting her spirits daily. And he represents food in the future. He'll nourish her in her old age. Now the author is determined that Israel's God should get the glory for all those good things. Verse 13 says, So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord, that's Yahweh, Israel's God, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Who's responsible for all the good things given to Naomi by baby Obed? The Lord, Israel's God. At one time, Naomi had so little confidence in Israel's God that she and her husband turned her back on him and moved to Moab. And it's as if the author is saying, look what happens when instead you worship the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, when you trust him. He can be trusted. He's a trustworthy God. Those old covenant believers needed to hear that. And that message is meaningful for us too in our period of salvation history. It encourages us to keep trusting in the God of the Bible. He's still in the business of providing for his people. Matthew 6 verse 33 in the New Testament says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, meaning life's necessities, food, drink, clothes, will be added to you as well. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Well, that might be exactly what someone among us today needs to hear. The God of the Bible is still in the business of providing for his people, providing the necessities of life for us. He can be trusted to do that. But there's still more meaning for us as New Covenant believers. You see, the book of Ruth ends with all eyes on a baby in Bethlehem. And that baby is identified as a redeemer. Take a look at verses 14 and 15. At first, it seems as if the women are talking about Boaz, but it quickly becomes clear they're talking about baby Obed. Verse 14, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. We think they're talking about Boaz. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has married him. That's what we think they're going to say, but that's not what it says. For your daughter-in-law has given birth to him. 
the redeemer they're talking about isn't Boaz, it's Obed. Boaz is Naomi's first generation redeemer and newborn Obed is her next generation redeemer. That's what the women of Bethlehem see in the baby. But when we see a redeemer born in Bethlehem, we can't help thinking of Jesus. Especially when we notice the family tree at the end of the book telling us that Obed is the grandfather of David, whose royal family line leads directly to Jesus. God makes the parallel impossible for us to miss. A baby boy born in Bethlehem, celebrated as a redeemer with a place in Jesus' family tree. The pointers can't be missed. So God who superintended the writing of this book and the writing of the Bible as a whole and the unfolding of history presents Obed as a kind of advanced model of Jesus. Like a prototype plywood model plane compared with a real flying people carrying plane. Models are useful because they give us a small-scale version of the real thing. And looking at the small-scale version helps us grasp information about the real thing. It's like that with Obed. In his own small-town way, he perpetuates the name of the dead, he restores life to an empty person, and he provides nourishment to that person. We can look at him and learn about Jesus. Jesus also perpetuates the name of the dead. He says in John 5, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. Jesus also restores life to empty people. He says in John chapter 10, verse 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And Jesus also provides lasting nourishment. He says in John 6, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Jesus is talking about his death on the cross. Jesus offered us the bread of his flesh at the cross because he chose to take the punishment for sin in his flesh as he died so that we wouldn't have to receive that punishment ourselves. That means his flesh provides eternal nourishment for everyone who trusts in him. His crucified flesh keeps us alive eternally. Without it, we'd perish, but with it, we have eternal life. It's the best kind of bread. Jesus fulfills all of those Obed expectations, not just for one grandmother, but for the whole world, for everyone who trusts in him. So great is the love of God who gave us Jesus, his son. If you're not yet trusting in Jesus, you could put your faith in him today. Let me close with a suggestion. As Christians, we know we're supposed to rejoice in Jesus. We know we're supposed to adore him. 
but sometimes the, the sheer scale of Jesus' greatness can make it hard to know where to start. Here's the suggestion. Think about Obed. Let newborn Obed serve as the plywood model that leads you to Jesus. Jesus is the real flying, people-carrying plane. Let Obed serve you as the model that helps you grasp information about the real plane. Those small-town expectations to do with Obed are easy for us to remember and visualize. He perpetuates the name of the dead by inheriting Marlon's land as Marlon's heir. We've got that. We can visualize it. And it points forward to Jesus, who perpetuates your name, your very life, forever. Obed also restores life to empty Naomi. We've got that. We can visualize Naomi's eyes brightening when she sees Obed smiling up at her. And that points forward to Jesus, who restores your life as your loving friend. He's our ever-present help in time of trouble. He fills our empty souls. Then thirdly, Obed nourishes Naomi in her old age. We've got that. We can visualize him working the land and bringing home the crops. It points forward to Jesus, whose sacrificed flesh nourishes us eternally by saving us from the destruction we deserve. When you're waiting for the subway tomorrow morning, think of Obed. He will lead you to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the prototypes that you've given us in the Old Testament. The plywood models that help us grasp information about the real thing, about your son Jesus. Please fix Obed in our minds that the expectations to do with Obed might help us grasp the goodness and greatness of your son Jesus. And as we meditate on Obed and the ways in which Jesus fulfills those expectations, please, Heavenly Father, would our hearts burn within us. We pray you would renew our joy and make us eager in our worship of you through your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.